when the world is falling apart. Let's pray. Father, would you speak to us this morning from your precious word? We beg your Holy Spirit to come into our minds and our hearts and give us understanding and give us the desire then to do your will. So would you bless this time and would you reign and rule over every word that is spoken here today? And would you take it to minister to the hearts of all who will hear it? I'm so grateful to pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. When the world is falling apart, Psalm 2. In our last session, we looked at Psalm 1. And we looked at two men going in two different ways and arriving at two different destinations. The two different ways have to do with the relationship of each man to God's word. One chooses to go his own way in the counsel of the ungodly, standing in the way of sinners and sitting in the seat of the scornful. And he winds up like chaff driven away by the wind and he cannot stand in judgment. The other man delights in God's word and he meditates on it as a lifestyle. And he winds up like a fruitful evergreen tree that the Lord watches continually. The Lord doesn't take his eyes off that person. Well, in Psalm 2, we see two different ways in relation to God's Son. And the psalm helps us to gain perspective about what's going on when the world is falling apart. There are times today when we look around and think, the world is falling apart. It's coming unglued. Everything is crazy. And this is not the first time in history that people have thought that. So through the years, people have looked around the world and asked, why? Why? Acts chapter 4, verses 25 and 26 clearly tell us that David wrote Psalm 2. And although it was written for a particular reason for him, <clears throat> at a particular time in his life, if we survey the psalm, we see this panorama of history of people against the Lord Jesus Christ. There are four pictures or four scenes in this psalm, and there are three verses that describe each scene. First of all, we're going to see the nations. Then we shall see um, heaven. And then we shall see what the Son of God says. And then we shall see advice given to the kings of the earth. The psalm begins with two big questions. Why do the heathen rage? And why do the people imagine such a vain thing? So let's read the first three verses. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their feathers, fetters apart 
and cast away their cords from us. We have here a picture or a description of the hatred of human nature against Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so the psalmist is amazed that people would go up in arms against God. Why, he says, is that happening? Another translation is, why are the nations in an uproar? Why are the people devising a vain thing? Now, when we did our study on Psalm 1, we saw that the blessed man meditates in God's word day and night. It's interesting. Look here in Psalm 2 and verse 1, you see the word uh, imagine, I think in King James Version, it's devising here in the New American Standard. But this word in the original language is the same word as meditate in Psalm 1. We talked about the word meditate, and we talked about it's kind of comparable to a cow chewing cud where he swallows his food and it comes back and he chews it again, and he swallows it and it comes back and he chews it again, and he swallows it and comes back and he chews it again. That's the way it is when we meditate on God's Word. So there's that same picture here, even though they've put a different English word in here. But what we see here is that people are outwardly enraged but their minds are going over it and over it and over it. They're meditating on it. They're devising it. So their minds are going over and over and over what? A vain thing. A vain thing. Vain means empty, worthless, no purpose, confusion, just stuff, just rehearsing hurts and bitterness and whatever they're not getting their way about. So the word is the same. Now, then before anybody can get a word in, the psalmist answers his own question. Right there in verse two, he says, he says, why are the nations in an uproar? Why are the people meditating on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. They're banding themselves together. Their whole approach to life and leadership is contrary to God's ways. They consult themselves. They don't consult God. They consult each other. Their people hear more of the voice of fallible man than they hear of the infallible God. And so watch the rest of the verse. See that again, against the Lord and against his anointed. They've banded together in hostility against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, when the word Lord appears in all capital letters in the Bible, it signifies the name of Jehovah or Yahweh. Um, so we know it's talking really here about God the Father. Jehovah is the self-sufficient one. He is self-dependent. He is a totally unique and awesome God. The Jews thought that that name was so holy. The word Yahweh is so holy and set apart, they wouldn't even say it. Uh, it is an unpronounceable word in the Hebrew language. And so they wouldn't even write it or touch it. Even today, sometimes you will see some of our Jewish friends when they want to write the word God, they just put G blank blank because it's so holy to them. 
The anointed of Jehovah is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, God's son. And so um, he refers here and he says, these kings of the earth and the rulers are taking counsel together and they're trying to figure out how to overthrow God and his son. And he tells us in verse three, let us tear their fetters apart. That's what they're saying. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. They think of God as bringing bondage. Uh, the reason sinners are opposed to Christ is that they hate the restraints of godliness. They want to get rid of the principles and the standards of Jehovah and of Christ. They don't want anything to do with those restrictions. Since Jesus is the perfect representation of God the Father, if you oppose God the Father, then you oppose Christ the Son. If you oppose Christ the Son, then you oppose Christ uh, God the Father because they're the same. Exactly the same essence, exactly the same character, two different revelations of the same thing. And so from the beginning of human history, mankind has rebelled against God's rule over him. Mankind has believed a lie. And that lie says to be free is to be separated from God. Man has always wanted to go his own way. We referred to this a little bit in our study of Psalm 1. And uh, it's the passage in Isaiah 53, verse 6, where this, uh, Isaiah tells us, All we like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. He's chosen to be his own God. And the Lord has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all uh, when we come to him. Adam and Eve wanted freedom from their way. And their disobedience um, caused them to become slaves, slaves to sin, separated from God. People and nations today cry out for self-government and independence from boundaries. Adam and Eve got their idea from the serpent who was Satan. Adam and Eve thought they would be enriched by going their own way. They doubted God's word, they doubted God's goodness, and they doubted God's sovereignty. They believed the lie that God was holding out on them. And that is the same huge temptation that is here for us today. God's holding out on you. You don't need to do that. God's got something good he can give you and he won't. God's holding out on you. Well, that's not the truth. But that is the lie that Satan wants us to believe. So um, they changed, they exchanged God's law, God's authority for shame, doubt, fear, blame, and insecurity. None of those things existed as long as they were under God's authority. When they stepped out from under God's authority, all of those things were born in them. Much contemporary philosophy is as old as Adam and Eve. Break the fetters and cords, anticipating that somehow they will be enriched because of it. 
Some tell us that Christian morality is outmoded and that Christian principles inhibit freedom. So they say, let us break these bands and cords. Let us um, be our own God. And so there's something about that restraining factor that God has in the world to keep us from destroying ourselves that people want to get rid of. They don't like it that the Holy Spirit is a convicting power. Maybe the Holy Spirit in you sometimes has been his presence, his mere presence has been a conviction to somebody around you. And so they don't like that. They want to be able to do what they want to do apart from God's law and feel good about it. But God loves us enough to not let us feel good about that. And so we stray in that way. And so they're trying to break away from that presence, that restraining presence. And that's why some people say that public enemy number one is the church. So they just believe that if they could just get rid of all of that, get rid of any restrictions, get rid of any standard that there would be peace and joy and that love would abound and everything would just be fine. This is spiritual rebellion. And another description of it is found in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, where he says, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Man knew the truth, but he preferred to believe a lie. Didn't want it to be so. And when that happens, Satan gets what he wants. And mind you, remember always that his goal always is to steal, kill, and destroy. So always understand that he wants nothing good for you. He's got a motive in making you believe a lie. All through history, there's this united rebellion that reveals itself in a man's refusal to obey God's laws and his attempts to change the consequences that God says exist. Verse 1 here in Psalm 2 calls that a vain thing. Why? Because true freedom is found in submission to God's authority. It is impossible to have freedom apart from submission to authority. Think about it for a minute. What if there were no traffic lights? Just did away with all traffic lights. What if we followed that by taking all of the stripes off of roads? No highways are marked. There are no lanes that are defined, no boundaries at all. What if there wasn't a rule that says you need to drive on the right side of the road? Now picture that in the middle of, a, of an interstate that has no lanes marked and you can drive anywhere you want to, any direction you want to on any side of the road. What would happen if parking spaces were not marked? And so freedom without authority is anarchy. 
Anarchy is a state of disorder that's due to the absence of authority. The authority, authority can either just be absent or just simply not recognized. And that's what anarchy is, when we just totally ignore any rules or any authority, any position of authority. Authority without freedom is slavery. True freedom is liberty under authority. True freedom is what happens that makes the world be able to articulate together. We can all articulate together. If we know where the parking places are, if we know where the lanes are, if we know what to do with the traffic light, on and on and on. And when we don't do that, what do we have? Total chaos. I'll give you a picture of it. Suppose a fish. Think about a fish for a minute. God created a fish to live in water. That fish, when he moves through water, he has beautiful flow. There's no chaos. He has food. The surroundings are made for how he was created. Let's suppose that that fish decides to, I'm not staying in this water. This is ridiculous to be confined to this water. I'm living in slavery. And he flounces out of the lake onto the side of the pond. Then what does he do? He flounders. He has no order. He can't breathe. He can't get food. And he continues to flounder and flounder and flounder and flounder until he what? Until he dies. Unless he repents and jumps back in the water. Right? God made us in his image. And in his image, he built us to function a certain way. The Ten Commandments aren't restrictions on us. The Ten Commandments are the, the design in which we operate the best because we're built that way. We're built in God's image. And when we begin to fight against all of that, then we're fighting against God. And that's hopeless. That's hopeless. So... These leaders here in Psalm 2 are taking counsel together to seek to overthrow God. And anarchy and chaos are increasing. That's what happens. So that's the view on the earth. Now, in chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, we're shown the situation in heaven while that's going on on earth. While the nations of the earth are raging like beasts and men are boldly shaking their fists against God, what is God doing? Verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. God laughs. Now, is he amused? Um, does he think it's funny? No. No, no, no. The King James says the Lord shall have them in derision. Uh, the New American Standard says the Lord scoffs at them. Here's the deal. God never heard anything so foolish or unreasonable or ridiculous as the empty boastings of mankind. That would be about like a tiny little black ant coming up to me saying, I'm going to attack you. And what could I do? 
God can do that at any time to any of us. And so this is foolish to God. He, God understands. And so God, what we have to understand here is God maintains his authority. Whatever men do, whether men accept it or not, doesn't change God's authority. God is still the supreme ruler of the universe. His laws are still in force. His judgments are certain. And if mankind cooperates with the laws of God, he will be blessed. He will prosper, Psalm 1 tells us. If he resists those laws, he's going to fail and be destroyed. Look at verse 5. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs and scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. God will speak. He will speak in his wrath. After he laughs, he will speak his word. Listen, the only thing God ever has to do at any time is speak his word. That's all he ever has to do, just speak. That's all he ever has to do, just speak. And so what's going to happen here is his word is going to go forth. That's what we see here in verse 5. Verse 6, but as for me, or I think the King James Bible says, yet have I. And so here's what the picture is. While man is in rebellious fury, God's anointed is appointed. Who is God's anointed? It's the Lord Jesus. God has already done all of that that the enemy is trying to prevent. It's already happened. It's done. God has spoken. The anointed has been appointed. Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, is ruler whether the world likes it or not. That's just the way it is. So these self-exalted rulers here, are a contrast to the king that God has exalted. You've got the anointed Christ, and then you've got all of these kings over here, counseling together, trying to decide how to overthrow God. God has established a king. And so what does he say? He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his fury and terrify, in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have already installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. All of the message about Jesus, even before he was born, God was able to say, it is done. It is done. Now we come to the third scene or the third picture in verses 7 through 9. Now the king, God's son, speaks. What does he say? I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. 
we've seen the wickedness of the world and its rebellion against God. We've seen the throne of God in heaven where God is sitting there. And we now see that the anointed one declares his rights of sovereignty. He declares his rights of sovereignty. The risen Lord, when he speaks, he speaks with calm authority. God is never red in the face, wringing his hands, trying to figure out what's going to happen next. No. Calm authority. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is the reigning king and judge. And one day, he shall return and he's going to smash the nations into pieces the way a potter smashes useless pottery. The nations that are rebelling against Christ today will one day be a part of his kingdom inheritance. Those who submit to Christ will one day share in this victory and his kingdom. God says, I'm just going to give you this stuff. Shatter it. Start over. It may seem when we look around that man is having his way in the world, that everything is out of control. But I want to tell you, God's decrees still stand, and they always will. In Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 11, God says, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. He is Jehovah, the self-existent one. He doesn't need anybody else or anything. The proof of it is the fact that he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we get to look at the end of the book from this psalm. So we can look at where David was when he was writing, but we can also look back. And so the psalmist, David, started by asking questions. And now here in scene, in the fourth scene, he's going to give some answers. He's going to give some instruction. He gives counsel to those who have received counsel to rebel. And so he's got all of these people that are, that are being encouraged to rebel. And he says, let me tell you what you need to do. And he gives instructions. Verse chapter 2 and verse 10. He begins with therefore. What is the therefore, therefore? Having his view of earth and then having had his view of heaven, he's come to some conclusions and he gives us some imperatives. First, he speaks to the earthly leaders. And it is an appeal from God for men to stop rebelling. It's vain, it's worthless, it's useless, it will accomplish nothing, it will get you nowhere but lost and defeated. So first he appeals to the mind. Watch what he says. First he says, Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. I think the King James just says, Be wise. Be wise. Be instructed. Stop your foolishness. 
be willing to be taught. Um, that's something that always rings in my heart because, you know, there are a lot of people that could do wonderful things if they were just teachable. If, you, if they would just listen and be taught, then they could grow and mature. But they get stuck in their ways and they refuse to be taught. So he's saying, open your mind, listen to the truth here. Compare what the truth is to what you're thinking. Take care of your mind. Think seriously about God's role in the affairs of men. Then he appeals to the will. I think, again, the King James Bible says, serve the Lord. This translation says, worship the Lord with reverence. Serve the Lord with fear. Submission and reverence are necessary. They go together and they are necessities. When I surrender to God, I give him proper reverence. I give him his proper place. I bow before him. And in that submitted, surrendered place, there will be joy. Not bondage, not tightness that Satan wants you to believe. There's going to be joy. See what he says? Worship the Lord with reverence, and then what are you going to do? Rejoice with trembling. You're going to be overwhelmed with rejoicing. It is the joy of fulfilling God's will according to God's word, which is far greater joy than joy that comes from doing your own thing. It's vain. There's, it's worthless. Nothing will come of it. It will not prosper. It will not mature. It just kind of goes from one thing to the next. But here, there's going to be a huge joy that comes from fulfilling God's will. And that joy is going to come from respectful, reverential commitment to the Lord God and to his son, the anointed one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone is serving something. If we are walking, living humans, we are serving something. We can be serving ourselves. We can be serving our families. We can be serving education. We can, be ser we can become, we can become uh, slaves, in a sense, to other people and to things. But everybody, everybody is serving something. Rebellion is caused by pride. And pride is a sin of the will. Did you see that here? Verse 12, do homage to the son. And so pride, pride is what transformed Lucifer into Satan. Lucifer was a great and beautiful angel who said, I want God's place. I will be like God. And so instead of bowing to God, Lucifer becomes his own God. He's transformed into Satan. And he lies. Because he wants our worship. He doesn't want God to have our worship. He wants our worship. And so look around. Nations are proud of their territory and resources and forget that all of these blessings come from 
God. Every blessing that we have is given to us, whether we're saved or not. Every blessing that we have is given to us by God, and it's to give us a heart to serve Him, to thank Him, to worship Him. So the third appeal here is to the heart, is to the heart. Verse 10, now therefore, kings, show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth, Worship the Lord, bow before him, submit to him. Worship is a, is a bowing before. Worship the Lord with reverence and then rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. I like the King James Version. It says, kiss the son. Kiss the son. This is a, reverent, a reference to the ancient practice of showing homage to a king by kissing his hand or even his foot. Sometimes you see pictures of, of a subject kissing the ring on a king's finger, but, but it's kissing him. And so what, the, what he says here is kiss the son. Kiss the son. Be satisfied that he is Lord. Submit to him as Lord and openly express the commitment. When we kiss him, it is a visible expression, a vis visible expression of, of what, what we are to him, of what our hearts are toward him. What if men don't submit to him? The end of it, they will perish when he reveals his anger. Do homage to the son, kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. Today, Jesus Christ is Savior. One day, the day is coming very soon when he will be judge. And when he becomes judge, he's going to pour out his wrath on the rebels of the earth. We come to a place where God says, no more of this. No more of this rebellion. I have good things for my people. Rebellion is in the way of that. These who are my people who have come to me, I will in no wise cast out. They will come to me. I will take them into my kingdom, but I'm not putting up with this other mess. That's not going to be a part of my kingdom. So he's going to be judged, and he's going to pour out his wrath on the rebels of the earth. And so we've got a chance today to kiss the sun, S-O-N, kiss the sun. After all, listen to me, he kissed you when he died for you on the cross. He kissed you. The psalm ends, it reminds us of Psalm 1. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Oh, the blessednesses of those who meditate on God's word, who see God's word is important, who live it out in their lives and oh, the blessednesses of those who realize who the Son of God is and kiss Him, bowing before Him in worship, submitting to Him. 
And you know what? We take refuge in him. We take refuge in him. The first psalm was a contrast between the righteous man and the sinner. The second psalm is a contrast between the tumultuous disobedience of the ungodly world and the sure victory and exaltation of the righteous Son of God. In the first psalm, we saw the wicked driven away like chaff. In the second psalm, we see them broken in pieces like a potter's vessel. In the first psalm, we saw the righteous like a tree planted by the rivers of water bringing fruit. In the second psalm, we see Christ made victorious Lord over all the earth. True wisdom lies and true freedom lies in obeying Christ. What can we take away from this psalm? Well, there in verse 9, we see that those who will not bend will be broken. Those who will not bend will be broken. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, you know them. Therefore also God highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If we bow to him today, acknowledging him for who he is, he is our Savior. If we wait and bow to him by force in the day of judgment, he will not be our Savior, he will be our judge. The theologian P.T. Forsyth wrote, the purpose of life is not to find your freedom, but to find your master. Who's your master? Is it yourself? You know, the song, um, very popular song, I Did It My Way, been popular for years. I get, when it dawned on me though, what the contrast between that song and Surrender to Christ, I just wonder if that's not the theme song of hell. I did it my way. If yourself is your master, there will be consequences for that. Whom will you follow? Whom will you follow? The athlete wants to find the best coach. All these professional tennis players are always changing coaches. They want to find the best coach. Golfers want to find the best coach so that they can make more money. Athletes want to find the best coach and they're going to submit to that coach. Students want to find the best teacher and he's going to submit to that teacher. The sick person wants to find the best doctor, and you're going to submit to that doctor. You're going to do what he says. The wise person will choose the right master. 
if there is to be any change in the world situation today, there's going to have to be a change in the heart of people toward the Lord. We've got to stop thinking that we have a better way, that we can rewrite scripture, that no rules make us free, and living in chaos. We have a picture in Psalm 2 of earth's turmoil and heaven's splendor. They're totally different. It is the believer's job. It is my job and your job as a believer to fearlessly, surely, intentionally, and purposefully alert the world around us to both knowing that God has said, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Jesus Christ the Lord is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Kiss him. Kiss him. Bow before him. Give up the chaos. Give up the strife. Surrender to the Lord, who is the king of peace, the king of order. And he will give us a path of blessedness, both in this life and the next, that is far beyond anything we can imagine. I encourage you, if you have not done it yet, to do it today. And if you've done it before, bow before him again. And know, when we look at the world today, God's got this. God has got this. He is our refuge, and we run to Him and are safe. May God bless you, and may this message from God's Word rest in your heart. <music>